Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hola, socios. Hola, equipo. My name is Neil. I'm Liam. This is John Nurnberger from Kansas City, Missouri, USA. Maury Field near Brisbane in Queensland. Edinburgh. Barcelona. And I'm a socio. I'm a socio. I'm a socio of The Big Interview. Hi, this is Taylor from Shenzhen, China. And I am a socio of The Big Interview. My favorite episodes are the weekly insights from La Liga. Living out in China, I can't keep up with the league I love because of the kickoff times and the fact that it's just not covered out here. It's not very popular, which is very, very sad. And Graham and his insight really helps me to stay in touch with the league I love and the football I love. Hello, I'm Neil White and this is the big interview at the World Cup. Graham Hunter is in Krasnodar, Russia, the location of the Spain team's training base. Today, we've got a slightly different show. We have asked our socios, that's the members of our supporters trust at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter to send in some questions. And my goodness, they've done just that. This is the first of two Q&A shows. Today, we're going to be focusing on the questions that our socios sent in regarding aspects of the World Cup away from the Spanish team. Tomorrow, we're going to focus on Spain. Graham Hunter, good day. Are you ready? Good day, yeah. The temptation is to say born ready, but given how long you've known me, you know it's not true. Welcome to 95-degree hot Krasnodar, as we're building up here in our hotel cafe to watch Brazil play. And remind me to tell you a little bit about the new addition to my my daily diet yesterday, and, and I'm going to post a picture of it on Twitter. And it's, it's certainly been the most intriguing part of my World Cup so far. Let's do that when we come back from the break, if I can remember. First up, we have Hassan from Saudi Arabia. Hello, Graham. I wanted to know your opinion on Jorge Sampaoli's Argentina side until this point, which, uh, judging by the Iceland game, he hasn't found the right system yet for Messi and the supporting players around him. And is the reason behind that is the fact that he hasn't had enough time with the team which is a year now since uh, his first game in charge against Brazil? Or is it an issue of not having good enough personnel that can cope with Leo's brilliance on the pitch? Or what exactly is it, in your opinion? Hassan, um, it's an interesting take that you've got because when the debate gets focused on, first of all, the slightly impoverished and stuttering nature of the display against Iceland, I certainly know one of my Argentinian colleagues with whom I spent a couple of training days in Moscow, was particularly worried about that game because by now we've gone on beyond talking about how small a population Iceland have got, what a surprise it is that they're at their second major tournament in a row, to a position where we understand that they've got exactly what Argentina don't have. So, for example, without comparing talent or without comparing resources or football history... If you could suck out of the Iceland squad the commitment, that unity, that it's, it sounds like a cliche. 
Hassan, it sounds to everybody like it's such an easy thing to say. But when you spend time around footballers, particularly in groups, you begin to see with crystal clear clarity the the truth of the idea of spirit and unity. And if you've got one guy working really hard to go beyond his natural limits, you can already see the power of that. When you see 23 guys plus the coaching staff, all of them or pretty much all of them at or above what they understood to be their maximum in terms of energy, uh, comradeship, uh, humor, uh, support, investment of mental and physical energy. When you see that, you can begin to get products like Iceland. And, And what you'll already know in Saudi Arabia is that it's been some time since Argentina have been able to do that consistently. There was a marvelous moment in qualifying after Sampaoli took over when it was vital to win away and the team looked balanced and it looked hardworking and as such, Messi thrived. And in the games between then and now, particularly in friendlies leading up to the tournament, what I've heard and watched is those who are specialists in Argentina, which I don't claim to be, predicting dire things, predicting that the organization, the unity, the types of players who are available, the inability of Sampaoli to find a proper role for Dybala, the absence of their best goalkeeper, which really, really came home to roost against Croatia. It's clear that you didn't need a replay to see that Willy Caballeros had better moments than the goal against Iceland. But when he fluffs that attempted sort of Phil Mickelson chip pass to Mercado last night against Croatia, you're already looking at a guy that you know is, number one, wherever he's been in his career, at that age, he's not world-class. He's also not playing enough football week in, week out to have that muscle memory where things go right without you even thinking about it. And, you know, without, you know, the reserve Manchester United goalkeeper in the squad, you get the feeling that there are international sides who benefit from a series of, like the domino theory of things just falling into place, whether it be to do with them, whether it be with their rivals, whether it be a refereeing call, and then you get those where you look at things just not falling into place. That was my feeling about Argentina. And if you go through their team man by man, they're are a few players where you think that's, that's not the type of quality that you need to support Messi. I'd also say that it's a damn shame for Mascherano that he is going to be carrying the can to a greater or lesser degree because he's at a stage in his career where, number one, the pace that he never really had is deserting him because of age. And number two... It hasn't benefited him as much moving to China as he hoped it would do when he left Barcelona, saying, I'm only leaving because I need more game time to be ready for the World Cup. It was typical of his mentality. But without giving too many names away, I spoke to the son of an Argentinian World Cup winner uh, last night after the game, Federico Ardiles. And uh, his point of view was that, you know, whatever Mascherano did have is now undermined by age and lack of pace. And there will be... And I haven't looked to the Argentinian media today as we're recording this, but what I will tell you is that they will they will be relentless. They'll go out for blood. And your point about team structure 
and and the balance is echoed by the fact that at Barcelona Messi has never ever not once allowed his success or his self-confidence or any degree of arrogance to say this is all about me and the rest of the team is just you know okay the supporting cast there um, works tirelessly for him believes in him each of them are willing to subjugate pretty much world-class talent in in you know 70% of the cases of the people he's played with at Barcelona they're world-class and they they understand him they work for him and they're wholly, completely dedicated to allowing his talent to shine. And the last thing I'll say about Argentina, and, and I believe this fundamentally, is that they don't believe. They haven't come to this tournament thinking that, yeah, this is going to click into place. This is going to be us. You know, they can still go through depending on today's result and then the third group games. We may be overtaken by events by the time that you listen to this. But as we speak, they can still go through. But what I look at and what I hear from people who are with them in training is that there's not an overall belief. Sampaoli, a tournament winner with Chile, has come out and said, listen, this is all my fault. I take complete responsibility. Great, he's shielding his players. But frankly, when you get a group that is is not wholly unified, when you get a, a group that is not working to the absolute maximum of its ability and a group where the confidence is patently low, you're going to get surprise results. And while Croatia may have been tipped by many people to beat Argentina, not by 3-0, not by an absolute walloping, whereas the second half went on, there was really only one side in it. OK, that's a beautiful bridge to our second question. It's as if you knew Finlay MacDonald was coming around the corner. Here's Finlay's question. Why are people surprised by Croatia being good? With Modric and Rakitic, they have the tempo setters of the two best teams in Spain. The supporting cast are all at top clubs. They appear to have a great spirit. How far do you think they can go? Hi, Finlay. It's an interesting question about how far, because while I agree with your assessment uh, completely, it's always worried me about whether Croatia can produce enough goals to go to a semi-final or a final. They've won by 3-0, and I think that that might look as if it undermines my argument. But, of course, the goals have, to a great degree, been flooding from a midfield. If Mandzukic hits form, and I thought... let Let me put it like this. There are people around Spain who have kind of looked at last night's performance and not really thought so much of Mandzukic, but I thought that he did an awful lot to bully and to terrorise Argentina. And what is absolutely essential is that he or, for example, Kramaric or, let's say, Perisic finds a goal streak. Because I don't think you can always rely on Rakitic and uh, Modric to be producing the, 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 the goals. But everything else you say about their technical ability, about what level of football they've been playing at, the fact that the majority of their team hold down first-team places, play at good-level clubs, have been taught a great deal by the Champions League. So far in this World Cup, Finlay, I'm, I'm thinking of it being much more like the Champions League than the normal first rounds of World Cup. We're into second rounds now, but the degree to which there is open play, the degree to which there's quite a lot of ebb and flow, people can debate the quality or goal numbers and go into stats and, and pretty quickly that'll bore me. The evidence of my own eyes, at least in the games I've witnessed, there'll be some absolute exceptions, is that 
it's been far less cagey, far more end-to-end. The bigger teams haven't necessarily been able to do what some people want, which is the box office of a nominally smaller or middle-ranking team being savaged, being pulled apart by outstanding brilliance. And I think that's a little bit much to ask of opening rounds. And I make this point because if, if you follow my contention that this World Cup has been far more like the ebb and flow of the Champions League, where it's actually a little bit difficult to determine, in many occasions, which is the home team, which is the away team, then in games like that, Croatia have the mentality and the strategic awareness to go with their technical ability to organise games, to understand about tempo, to understand about when to rev up, to understand when a rival is on the back foot, when to press, to flood. They're physically very committed. They're not a, a wimpish team. They may not be brutes by any manner of means, but like you, you're not going to wrestle them off the ball easily. You're not going to bully them out of games easily. They've got a really, really good mentality in my view. And therefore, last night, if, if, if I set aside my affection for Leo Messi and my repeatedly stated contention that nothing would make me happier than him lifting the World Cup in the Lushniki on the 15th of July... And gosh, isn't that getting close? Croatia made me enjoy the game. There's no word for them other than respect in the way that they harassed, they pressed. They absolutely knew that they were the more confident side. Yes, Modric played with absolute class. Looked as if he was a guy with endless energy. This is what I begin to wonder, whether... You know, his, his career has taken him to so many heights. He puts in so many minutes that... The, how he keeps in shape to unroll the talents that he's got all the time at the top level is is nothing short of marvellous to me. And, for example, he might not have been the star of last night, but I'm a big fan of the distribution of the ball that you see from Versalico at Letty's right back. And in and throughout the team, each season I've found there are new players to learn about and to like. I thought Lovren looked relatively comfortable. I thought that they understood as well that if they, if they pressed space and closed the room around Messi, they didn't make it about stopping Messi. They, they stopped the ball getting, or tried to stop the ball getting to Messi. One, at all, two, in comfortable situations. And it was very much as if each of them has seen enough of Messi, at club rather than international level, to say, we know how to stop him functioning. And it worked to a treat. He looked morose. Um, physically, he, he didn't, sort of try to wrestle the game back by saying, I'll have the ball and I'll, I'll take this game by the scruff of the neck. The Dybala substitution for my money looked late. Conaguero, as one of the few sensible things Diego Maradona has come out with for, I don't know, many, many years, but also at this tournament, Conaguero looks a little bit short of match fitness, I would say. And therefore, you know, Croatia's merit is that they're a team with huge amounts of tournament experience I really didn't like the way they went out of the Euros against Portugal they, there was a little bit of um, coming to my parlour said the spider to the fly in at Portugal were you know if you wanted entertainment were atrocious that day but sucked Croatia in boxed them off waited 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 and broke and you could see if I'm not mistaken Rakitic was taken off that night you could see Croatia's trust in themselves to have that can opener moment where they're like, yeah, okay, we know how to cut you open, put as many 
Portugal shirts behind the ball as you want. We, we know we've got the guy who can produce a magical dribble or a clever pass or a perfectly timed run or a shot from distance. And they, I, I think they are hurting from that elimination, the style of that elimination. And I think, Finley, to back your point, this is one of those tournaments where what we're going to see from Croatia is all in, absolutely all in. I don't think that all this squad will be back for another major tournament, certainly not a World Cup. And therefore, we're going to see that like all or nothing element which can take you far. They also look fit and sharp, which is going to be such a high premium in this tournament, where admittedly the temperatures vary. There are some grounds where you're going to get a bit of rain and, you know, 20, 22 degrees. And you have some grounds where you're going to be blistering heat, and as it is here today, 95 degree heat. So energy is a massive thing. And like you, Finlay, I enjoyed how Croatia played. Thanks, Finlay. Michael Comiskey says, Who has been a bit of a letdown for you guys so far in the World Cup? And who has been one you maybe didn't expect much of that has excelled? Well, I suppose we have to play around with um, letdown and excelled. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat a little bit here because I'm a little bit let down that Morocco are out. Um, they played. Now, I think that they, if I'm right, they haven't scored. But they played with far more of joie de vivre against Iran than Iran did in that match. And then against Portugal, they absolutely outran them. They played lovely creative passes. Their attacking intention was admirable, I thought. I enjoyed watching everything about their attitude and their mentality. And they just couldn't score. Benati was like one of these old school sort of not hotshot Hamish, but Royal or Billy's Boots. <laughs> Even though nominally he is a centre half, like Ramos, it was him or Piquet, it was him who was up in the penalty box almost all the time and not just to set plays, looking to score, bringing out saves um, from Rupertisio, shaving the post, just absolutely taking responsibility for the display. And then they all wept on the pitch. They were clearly very unhappy with their version of the referee's performance. And Amrabat has claimed today that I think he was a United States referee. He reckons that he heard the referee asking Pepe for his jersey after the game, which I have no comment on, but that's what Amrabat thinks happened. So it's not the answer you were expecting, but I actually feel a little bit sorry for a side like Morocco that thus far they haven't had returns for their industry. And I hope it doesn't come on uh, Monday in Kaliningrad, but I think Spain have got an entertaining opponent who I personally wish weren't yet out of the uh, World Cup. I think that I'm more patient than, than many about this idea that, you know, with sort of only a third of the second round games played, if that, that we need to be seeing France and Germany and Brazil absolutely excelling themselves and playing blinding football. I was a little bit let down, as I said last night. Um, I'm not going to go over it again because I don't want to be repetitive about the quality of Spain's performance against Iran, even having given kudos to, to Iran. But I think when people are going, well, Brazil were a little bit of a letdown or Germany looked really easy, punched and taken apart on the break by Mexico and you know France are kind of doing the minimum. One of the ones where I'd hoped to see a little bit of fun, I have to admit, was Uruguay. You know, they've got the points. I'm pretty sure that they're not only qualified, but they're in a powerful position in terms of potentially winning their group. It'll be a hell of a match next week between another side that's really surprised me. I don't want to go too much into the hosts because 
there are there are things about a Russian football that you know are perturbing. But Cheryshev, who's having a hell of a tournament, is a guy who, you know, obviously I've seen a lot of him in Spain. I've met him once, mixed zone only, and has had such bad luck. Shifted from club to club, a succession of injuries, that mad instance with uh, Real Madrid when he was played because um, nobody thought to check that he was suspended and Real Madrid were kicked out of the cup. That's something that a young fella carries around on his shoulders, although he had absolutely no blame whatsoever in in the affair. And therefore, to see him here, I think he had a choice of nation. He chose Russia. The fervour for their performance, for the fact that they're scoring goals, for the fact that they're already through, is, is gigantic. I'm enjoying that. And because a decent guy with a decent football talent is now beginning to get some rewards on an international stage... That's pleased me quite a degree too. Well, I'd like to add one more to the list of those who have excelled that maybe we didn't expect too much of. So the other half of Backpage, my colleague Martin Gregg, we were working on the publication of Grant Wall's book, Football 2.0, just before the World Cup started. And there's a chapter in there where Grant sits down with Chicharito and Osorio, the coach and striker of the Mexican team, And we spent a good while working on that chapter in which Osorio kind of lays out his master plan and this kind of complicated tactical dance that he, (laughs) that he has them doing to get the best out of his, his front line in particular to create the best premium chances for those guys. And after we worked on that chapter, Martin said to me that he was convinced that Mexico were going to do something at this World Cup. And I was slightly more cynical. Um, I've heard, as I'm sure we all have, a lot of managers talk the talk and it doesn't always end up with the walk being walked but against Germany I think I joined Team Mexico and I'm looking very much forward to see them I think progress from the group and then to see if they can reach that elusive victory in the last 16 that has uh, that has eluded them so far. Well let me, let me throw something in because um, we've got in this hotel, it's very modest hotel, we've got a number of Mexicans staying here as of yesterday. And they're brilliant. They're dressed up in their sort of gaucho hat or whatever you call those mad sombreros and Mexican kits and flags and lots of silver trinkets and they're sort of buoyant and noisy. And I was like, what the hell are you doing here? And they're like, well, this is a stop-off because not only have they flown from Mexico to Russia, they have to take four flights to get to the next game. And this is just a city where... There's a set down, so they thought, all right, let's make a night of it in Krasnodar. Now, when you're willing to do all of that and you get a performance like uh, they did against Germany, that's one of the things that makes the World Cup a joy. And even though I think, certainly in the UK, there's grown a lot of cynicism about the level of play in the tournament and its place in the world ranking vis-a-vis the Champions League and... Somebody wrote the other day that the World Cup's in danger of becoming like a sort of traditional family holiday where you kind of look forward to it all year and then you're a little bit underwhelmed by what actually takes place. Well, I suspect not for the Mexican players or fans. Um, They'd started the World Cup with a really colourful story about their, their, their feelings about orgies and prostitutes, after which there was no falling apart at the seams. They were obviously given a right good footballing test by a, a Bonnie Scotland side. I think in the Azteca, correct me if I'm wrong, Neil, 
And I don't know if everybody listening to The Big Inside View knows that at the time there was quite a lot of calls in this Mexican media just before the World Cup for Osorio to go. <laughs> so if he didn't give two fingers to the Mexican media in the press conference of the mix on after being in Germany, <laughs> then my, my hat goes off to him for his patience and his tolerance because... The same guys who wanted him out of a job after unbelievably managing to get past Alec McLeish of Scotland by one goal will now be calling him a hero and Mexico will be touted in their home country as potential winners of the tournament. So, viva Mexico, viva Mexico. OK, let's take a break there. Still to come, more questions from our socios at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. And welcome back. Graham, this one from Stuart Cruikshank. Being at the tournament with the great and good of the game, have you met anyone on your travels in Russia that you have been tempted to ask to take part in a big interview for next season? Well, tempted, yes. In that Fernando Hierro, I've met him before, uh, Stuart. To spend a little bit of time behind the scenes now with Fernando Hierro and, and not be interviewing him when I'm with him makes me even more interested in this guy who is a very strange story in that he's got two brothers, at least two brothers, but two professional footballing brothers. And Fernando Hierro is absolutely vehement about the fact that he was the worst of them. And in one instance, he says, by a long way. And he was born down in uh, Andalusia, very near Malaga. And Malaga was the club he supported and loved as a kid. He went for a trial with them and failed. And they told him, now nah, you're no good, son. So he had to go and play amateur third division football until his brother Manolo, I think it was, got signed for Real Valladolid, who were coached by an Argentinian. And there was a director of football there who was also open-minded to listen to Manolo Hierro. And Manolo said, listen, I'm coming, but I want you to take my kid brother on trial. It's a free trial. You know, he'll pay his own expenses. If you sign him, you won't have to pay anything because he's playing amateur at the moment. And they were like... Yeah, all right, whatever. And up comes Fernando Hierro, one of the modern European greats, to, to go on trial with Real Valladolid. And it takes them less than an hour to say to him, you're signed, boy. This is fantastic. You're in. He plays two seasons at Valladolid. What they say, titular here, which is like first choice. Arguing with him about whether he's a centre-half or he's a, an attacking midfielder. And Real Madrid signed him after two seasons. So from you know, regional third division amateur football to Real Madrid in two seasons ain't a bad story. Then he does other things that you'll remember very well. And if you're, you know, too young to have seen much of him, let me tell you that, you know, he, he puts Koeman in the shade. I think Yero was significantly the better footballer, but similar in that he could play at the back, he could play in midfield. His goal-scoring record was absolutely fantastic. He was an outright leader, hard, elegant, tough personality, a symbol of Madridismo, subsequently has gone on to be director of football in a Spain World Cup winning era. But I, I think the things that I'm talking about that would fit well in a big interview would be the, the idea that when he's offered the chance, he's kicked out by Florentino Perez because he stood up for Fernando Morientes. At the beginning of the season when Madrid are, are playing in the Super Cup in Monte Carlo, there's a, there's a, a set to about... Florentino Perez trying to push Fernando Morientes out of the club to get the transfer fee and to tur- just to turn over personnel. And Dabowski's ordered like, I-, I don't want you know to see Morientes in the team. 
And so Morientes is kind of pushed around a little bit. The crowd are against it. And Fernando Hierro, as captain, stands up to the president and says, this isn't the right thing to do. So the end of the season, he's turfed out. And having played a little bit in um, in the Gulf, yeah, I mean, he played in uh, Qatar at the same time as the De Boers and Pep Guardiola. And he and Pep Guardiola are pretty close. He, he plays at Bolton. He utterly adored his time in English football. He felt a different person for what he learned in, in England. He would, I think, under certain circumstances, coach in the Premier again. I think if he was pushed, I don't think that's his, his, his goal or his priority. But his attraction to England and the values of football in the UK is very, very high. And that sort of unexpected way he arrived at Valladolid, that unexpected pleasure that he took in a, when he took a risk at Bolton and that unexpected landing of the job in his hands doesn't mean he's going to do the same this time. And indeed, I make no bones about the fact that I think he strategically misread the way to line the team up on the other day against Iran. However, things destiny seems to keep tapping Fernando Hierro on the shoulder and I'd like to know more about his thoughts of that. And the other one, and maybe you're thinking that you know, I've met Jorginho or Kurt Muller, I don't know. But the other one I've met so far, because we're following this, the Spain train and therefore we're not, you know, in Moscow in the IBC or in the, in the hotels where the, the television stars who were ex-footballers um, tend to dot around. That may come if Spain progress. The guy I'd love on the big interview is Ronnie Whelan. I saw Ronnie in Kazan and we had a good old chat and we were harking back to <clears throat> a big night out that the big interview had uh, with him and Steve McManaman and Des Kelly in Sevilla, probably after the Manchester United game. It was, it was very, very funny. Uh, Ronnie's still very witty, uh, strong opinion, super, super player. And therefore, I wouldn't mind inviting Ronnie to have a little time sitting down with the big interview in due course. But it's a good question. So we'll keep topping up that answer for the longer that Spain stay in the tournament. I like the sound of that. This one from Ross Templeton. Graham, do you think it's time a rule tweak is introduced to discourage teams playing 10 men behind the ball? Plenty of games this tournament have been ruined by such tactics. No pressing and no intent to attack. I support your idea. Your concept is a better way to say it, Ross. Danny Carvajal did. He said post-Iran, where, where there were no, numerous occasions when Iran had you know, nine or 10 men in their own box and their own behind the ball. It's, it's Danny Carvajal spoke in a way that some of the Barca players spoke about Rangers after the 0-0 Champions League draw at Ibrox, where the word anti-football made its debut in, in, in Britain, having allegedly been used by some of the Barca players about the way that Walter Smith's team played. Well, Danny Carvajal said something similar. He said that playing like that was disloyal to football, almost like a betrayal to football. And... I don't know that I buy that idea because I don't enjoy it. I, if I were gifted the chance to coach a club team, a pub team, a national team, you wouldn't see my sides playing that way. But when you get you know, a group with limited resources playing a group with extraordinary resources, don't you try and hang on to the game any way you can? Isn't the test about how clever the other side with the ta- more talented um, opponents how well they work it out, how well they open it up. And it takes two to tango. I, for, for example, your point is wider. I'm aware of that, Ross. And it's a good one. And if you could find a way to tell me this is how we'll do it, I'd sit down and have a Jaffa cake and a cup of tea with you. But 
one, I'm not sure how you do it, unless it's like cricket with certain number of people within a certain zone, or otherwise the whistle gets blown. And then we talk about staccato football and you know the slowing down of the pace of a game. So I'm open-minded to the idea, but my point of view was, if Iran did that, as, as we see, and I grew up in an age of Catanaccio, when I, when I rattle on about, aggressively often, about people who criticise the Champions League, and they, and they misty-eyed glorify the European Cup. I, I go back to the often rubbish qualifying games where you know, a one-goal lead was paramount and everybody sat behind the ball. And if anybody wants to go back and watch, I think it was, was it Red Star in the final against Milan, if I got that right? Stau Bucharest against Barcelona in Sevilla in 86. And as marvellous as Nottingham Forest winning the trophy twice was... And that was hugely exciting for a Scot, given that there was always Scots throughout those teams. The second game, when John Robertson scores um, at the Bernabeu against Hamburg, the second game, the rest of the game is atrocious. So I know what you're talking about, and I don't think Iran came anywhere near that level of dullness or organisation. And in fact, in the second half, they went out after the game. There are other sides you're talking about. So again, I say that I know you're not just talking about that game. I'm still unconvinced that it wasn't partly Spain's fault in that match, that they didn't risk the one-on-one more, that they didn't risk tight wall passes, that they were a little bit too scared of giving the ball away. And when you get one rival, the ones you're criticising, Ross, where they're ultra-committed to defence and just actually getting a sludge of bodies behind the ball so that players can't do special things, it's, it's somewhat down to how the opponent says, I'm going to take a risk against you. I'm going to tease you and taunt you and I'm going to pull you apart. I'm going to shoot from distance. I'm going to try a dribble. And that is a risk because breakaway goals are are very penalising against 10-man defences. I accept it. But I I, I see fault on both sides in almost every game where the 10-man defence is is predominant. And once you've got an absolutely clear-cut idea of how you want to achieve your idea, send it back in and we'll talk about it again. Okay, our final question today comes from another socio who has recorded their question and sent it in. So I'm going to hand over to him now. Hello and a very warm welcome from Austria to you guys. First of all, I want to say thank you for all the great stuff you produce. I really love the show and all the insights you get through it from players and managers. So now to my question. I want you to ask if you think that for a national team it might be more important to be a good man-manager as a coach and keep everybody happy or to be more of a tactical genius that can place a structured game plan within a short time in the players' minds. Of course, there might be some managers who are capable of both, but that seems to be very rarely the case. So, Graham, what do you think? Thomas V. Gates. I've got a clear view on this. I think that the idea that an international manager... Um, needs to be a tactical genius is interesting. It would help. But if you don't have the former, if you don't have the ability to convince, I, I think the word inspire is one that needs to be used rarely. Because by any definition, if you've got a group of 23 players of any of the real leading nations, by which probably we would all agree there are what... I don't know, 10, 12 of them, leading leading nations. In any of those squads that reach a major tournament, you are going to have the vast majority of footballers who are highly professional, highly fit, mentally very tough, experienced, full of clear ideas about 
the game, able to take in tactical instructions very, very quickly and then apply them in the majority of cases here I'm talking about. And therefore, if you've got all those players and then you've got a guy who's strategically or tactically brilliant, really interesting, and in some instances potentially threatening because of what he's asking the guys to do, but he can't inspire or convince or lead, then you're automatically undermining your own brilliance. So neither of us, Thomas, I'm sure, are talking in, in, in comic book terms. If you've got a great international side and you've got a guy who's just a, a rabble-rouser and a shouter and good, a good laugh with the media, that's not what we're talking about. That kind of conviction and ability to convince and leadership for an international group comes in many forms. It can be through ebullience. It can be through friendship with the players. It can be with respect. It can be with, as Pep Guardiola showed at Barcelona, more than as other clubs, I would say, a messianic ability to convince with his dressing room discourse. Because the players at Barcelona told me that it was stunning to be listening to him, that he gave you clarity and conviction and that it was hypnotic. Now, at international level... It's like being outside in a 95-degree heat day and then coming inside to air conditioning. It can be destabilizing to work with a, between a player, group, and a manager so three or four times in a year over bursts of five or six days. And then to win a tournament, to be together for six or seven weeks, that absolutely requires that the manager has what you touched on, Thomas, that it, however, whichever adjectives you want to use. You must be able to keep people attentive. You must be able to be get under their skin. Or you must be able to <laughs> make them frightened to disobey you. There has to be that in order for a group to win a title. But also, let's say, go back to your other concept, that the strategic or tactical brilliance. How do you get that across? How do you convince people if you are not that type of leader that you're talking about? in international football. Club is a different thing. You have them daily. You have a very high degree of power over them. Not absolute. Players can lose managers of their jobs because you're not just talking about run-of-the-mill men now. You're talking about in the elite at club or international level, which is the more important trait. Club level, I think you can have a broader answer. And if you've got a club whereby you teach the tactics or the strategy day in, day out, and the players become convinced, not necessarily by you, but what, what they see on the training ground, that's a whole different debate. But with this tournament, where training sessions are to do with recuperation, after a big game, half your squad is missing, you have to work out how often do you want to train, you have to try and get concepts across quickly. So my firm answer is that while strategy and tactics are central parts of winning a World Cup, if you're that manager who's got the ability to convince and get players to follow your lead in a tournament, particularly a short-form tournament, that's the premium asset. Okay, thank you, Thomas, and thank you to all our socios who sent in questions. There'll be more tomorrow from the socios who had Spain-specific questions to ask Graham. We're going to be talking about Diego Costa, we're going to be talking Busquets, and we're going to be talking Thiago, amongst others. For now, that's our show. Thank you very much for listening. Please, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you, Graham Hunter in Krasnodar, Russia. Questions from England, Scotland, Saudi Arabia, Austria. Man, it's fantastic. And all of you probably want to know a lot about the dead, smoked, dried fish that I um, 
detailed, de-headed, and descaled before eating yesterday. And if you do, then the images will be on Twitter this afternoon. I don't know what the Russian for bon appetit is, but we'll go with dosvidanya. I'll give you una cerveza más or otra cerveza in Russian. It's something like Adnan Pivo Pajalst. I really hope you're enjoying these World Cup shows. We've got huge plans for next season, but we do need your help to make them happen. Go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, a member, to join us, to support us. You'll get an extra big interview every month, plus lots of other bonus content. Last season, our members got nine exclusive big interviews, including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Dini, and Roberto Di Matteo. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Do it now, please. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.